Dads, my hope for you is that you break free from the expectations and limitations of others and you are able to step into a calling that is going to give you fulfillment in your life and leave a legacy for your family. Well, my guest today is Travis Chapel, and Travis has been able to do exactly that. Travis is going to share his story on how he broke free of a mold in which he literally grew up in and broke free of the expectations and limitations of others to step into a new life, to a life that was more in alignment with his calling, more in alignment with his skill, and more in alignment with the vision that he had for him, his wife, and their family. Travis is the host of the Travis Makes Friends podcast, an incredible podcast where Travis interviews some of the world's best-known celebrities and has real conversations with them. Travis is also the founder and CEO of Guestio. Guestio is an online podcasting platform that pairs guests and hosts from all over the world. This young man, and I'm going to call him young, is an incredible entrepreneur. He's an incredible influencer, and I hope he influences you today to take the next step to fulfill your calling in this life. My conversation with Travis Chapel on the Dad's Making Difference podcast starts right now. You are listening to the Dad's Making a Difference podcast, the number one podcast for men driven to live a life of significance. Men who want to make a difference in the lives of their families, in their business, and in the world around them. My name is Cam Hall, founder of Fight the Dabot and leader of the Dad's Making a Difference Mastermind. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. Now, let's dive in. Travis Chapel, welcome to the Dad's Making a Difference podcast. Pumped to have you on today. Hey, what's up, Cam? Thanks so much for having me. And Travis, I've been looking forward to this conversation because uh, for the people in our community who have heard your name or seen your name, they know you as a super successful entrepreneur who's out there building amazing relationships and hosting his own incredible podcast and owning business, all that. But yeah, made I mean, some, re- some yeah. of it's true. Yeah. Some of it's true, but I'm I'm really intrigued by you being a dad, man. And that's why you're here is because yeah. I wanted to reach out and like digging to the more like the person, like what does this mean for you to balance all these things in your life with being a father? So why don't you, we kind of start there, Travis, why don't you share a little bit about like who you are, a little bit about what it was like for you growing up. We'd like to ask like, Hey, what was your, what was your dad? Like, what was your relationship like with your dad growing up and we'll kind of kick from there. Yeah, sure, dude. So I grew up uh, in a religious culture of bubble cultish type environment. Uh, so not in a necessarily even like a terrible way. Like we weren't, you know, we weren't too crazy. We were a little crazy, but we weren't too crazy. So uh, just to give people an idea, I graduated kindergarten in the same campus I graduated college from, which is also where I went to church. So six, seven days a week, I was at this one 40 acre campus, basically from the time that I was four, five up until I was 20, 21. Um, everything I knew was there. My friends were there. My you know, my youth pastors were my teachers, my teachers and my youth leaders, everything was kind of mixed, intermingled and all kind of the same. Uh, and, uh, and that was, that was largely my childhood. You know, the majority of the time was spent there at that church. Um, and ironically in Southern California and, uh, in LA County, Northern LA County is a city called Lancaster. And, uh, uh yeah, I, I had a, I had a good, good relationship with my dad growing up. Uh, he was a real estate agent, um, and then investor as well, real estate investor, and, uh, he, he, uh, I always had a lot of respect for my dad's uh, work ethic and 
for pulling himself out of basically nothing to build the life that he was able to build. Like he, you know, when, when I was a little kid, we were essentially, you know, in poverty, we were, we were, um, he got laid off from a couple of jobs and we moved back in with my grandparents at the time. And we were, we were living in a three bedroom house in a city called Lake LA, Lake Los Angeles. And it sounds awesome. Like if you hear it, it's like, Oh, Los Angeles and a Lake. That sounds awesome. You know? But really what it was, it was a, it was a man-made lake in like the 1940s and it dried up long, like decades before I was born. And it's really just a, a crap hole town uh, that's 10, 15 miles east of Lancaster. So Lancaster is already like, if you're in the LA area and you're familiar with Antelope Valley, everybody I talk to, like if I'm in LA or whatever, they basically use it as the place that they drive through to get to, you know, somewhere North, um, or, or they know it as like the meth town. Like that's where all the, you know, <laughs> the meth users and people who got kicked out of the prison systems in LA moved to, cause it's like the cheapest place to live in LA County. Um, it's hour, hour and a half, hour to hour and a half outside of, of LA. So Lancaster itself was already not a good town, but we live 10, 50 miles East of Lancaster in like a town of, you know, 10 to 15,000 people called Lake LA in, in a three bedroom house with my grandparents and their son. So it was like me, my sister, my uncle, my dad, and my mom, and my grandparents in this three bedroom house um, after my dad got laid off. And that was at the, the point where he was like, you know what, I'm done with this working for other people thing because they're controlling my income and that sucks. So he um, started doing real estate at the time and it took him a few years to get rolling. And, um, by the time we were junior high, we had definitely made it to the middle class. You know, he was making a six figure income for himself and, uh, and was really smart and frugal and disciplined with his money. And he put his money to work and bought houses instead of buying frivolous things like nice cars and uh, different things like that. Um, so we didn't go without, you know, like we still had all the things, like if I needed basketball shoes for school, I could, they, they would buy them for me. If, you know, we needed, if we were going to camp for the summer, they would pay for it or whatever. Anything in addition to that, they were uh, always very clear that it was our responsibility to go work for it and earn more money. We wouldn't just get handouts and do whatever that way. Uh, so they, they were, they were very, my dad was really good about uh, his financial mindset. Uh, he always had good credit. He paid his bills and he, like I said, was just very smart and frugal with the money that he did make. And I think probably it was because he saw what poverty did to the rest of his family and of everybody in his family, he's the only one that made it out of that state of poverty. Um, and a lot of them are still um, unfortunately in that, in that world to this day. And so I, I just kind of, kind of got lucky that my dad, for whatever reason, was just like, I'm, I'm not, I, they, a lot of people like, you know, that kind of stuff is hereditary. Your credit, your financial decisions is very hereditary. You do what your parents do. So I, I was lucky that he, he broke away from that mold, um, and kind of set me up even, you know, mindset wise to be able to go build some, some, some cool things at an, at an early age. And even though the, the church thing kind of like prevented me from doing that in a lot of ways, um, it still was good for my mindset to see that it was possible or doable for people to change their situation, I guess. Um, so my dad and I've always had a pretty good relationship in that regard. There were some, some bumpy times, some rocky times, uh, when I was leaving the religion that I grew up in, um, there was obviously some, some discord there, but you know, we've since made up and, uh, just mainly focus our relationship on other things that we do agree on rather than focusing on the things that we don't agree on. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky in a lot of those ways. Man, you said so much there that I'd love to unpack and just ask you about. You speak of your dad and you're just letting these things roll off of he was done working with other people. He started his own thing. He was he taught you how to be frugal, how to be responsible, earn your own thing. Man, your dad sounds like a pretty resilient guy. Oh, for like, sure. Is that something for that's sure. carried on with you through your pathway? 
I think so. I think so. Like I said, like I, I think we, I think we as kids have a tendency to pick up more on the things that we watch our parents do rather than the things that they tell us to do. Yeah. And so there were, you know, other things where he would maybe tell me to do certain things yeah. and I never really picked up on those things, yeah. but uh, it was cause he also wasn't doing those things, but the things that he did do, I did pick up on those things, you know, like being, being fiscally responsible, being, um, you know, smart with your money, putting money in places that earn you more money rather than buying things that don't make you money and they only lose money. Uh, and, and like I said, he had, he had no, he had no reason to do those things is, is yeah. kind of my point is like, he was forging his own path. And like I said, Lancaster is not a town to go get ahead in, you know what right. I mean? Like there's not companies moving there. There's not good jobs. There's not a lot of people coming out of Lancaster and going to really great schools and Ivy league programs. Like there's just nothing. You're, it's a dead end place where most people go as a dead end career. It's either that, or like you're in you know, corrections or you're in aerospace or something like there's a lot of aerospace out there. Edwards air force base is 30 minutes away. Like there's, there's some military and some air force and some aerospace engineers and Lockheed and, and Northrop out there, but that's pretty much it. Everything else is just like crappy dead end jobs. Um, and then my dad chose to be a real estate agent, which is a path that can make you decent money wherever you are. And, and he, you know, ended up excelling doing that, but yeah, his parents got divorced when he was like 17. Um, his dad, my grandpa, who's an awesome guy, uh, for, uh, for a time just kind of lost his mind and he ended up in a, um, in a mental institution for a little bit. My dad was to, like taking care of him at 17, his mom pieced out and moved across the country. So he was just by himself taking care of his dad. His sister moved in with his mom across the country. So he was just left as a 17 year old kid to just like, well, I'm done with high school. Let me take a few classes at junior college and get a job. You know what I mean? But yeah. when, by the time he was like 20, he bought his first duplex. Uh, it was a piece of crap on a crap side of town, but he lived in one side of it, rented the other side out. Like he, I'm, I'm saying like he was just always for whatever reason, even though he didn't have any, you know, influence that showed him that this is the path yeah. he was still, he was still yearning for, for more in, 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 in forging his own path. And I think a lot of that uh, really rubbed off on me because anytime I had like crazy ideas, I've always been kind of like entrepreneurial, yeah, ask you. Yeah. you know? So even as a kid, my parents got me this little it was like uh it was like the boys version of an easy bake oven you know what i mean it was yeah. like you could make little you could make little <laughs> bugs little insects you could like put little gels in these metal molds put them in an oven and then get them out and you you could make like a little centipede insect thing and like i think it was like the creepy crawler machine creepy or crawler, whatever yeah. it was the little know? gummy candy yeah. Made. Yeah. But it wasn't edible. They were just little toys. Okay. Okay. And so I would make those and bring them to school and mm -hmm. sell them to like kids that were younger than me in like the pickup lines and stuff like that. So even from that age, I was like, I was, I wanted to make money doing things, you know? So my parents would give me opportunities to work for the money. Um, and then every time I made a dollar, one thing that I thought was, uh, that I liked a lot that they like as an adult that I look back on and appreciate is every time I made every, anytime I made any money at all, we had, I had a saving, I had a, like a piggy bank, right? But there were three parts of the piggy bank. One of them was a church. One of them was a store and one of them was a bank. And it was, it started teaching me from a very young age. Like here's the dollar that you earned. 10% goes to the church, you know, for giving or whatever. So even though I'm not really religious now, it's just like, okay, 10% goes to giving to a cause you care about or to helping people or whatever. Then there's the store. This is for spending. And then uh, it was, I think 20% that made me save of every dollar I ever made from the time that I was freaking three or whatever. I started making money, like even birthday money, whatever, any dollar I got in, I had to say, I had to tie 10%. I had to save 20% and the rest I could 
I could spend. Yeah. But by the time I was graduating high school, bro, like the money that I had saved, my sister and I both had had done that. So the by the time we graduated high school, we were in college. They were taking that money and they were throwing it into a, a mutual fund account. Mm-hmm. And by the time we had graduated uh, high school, we each had like ten to twelve thousand dollars or something like that. Um, in, in by the time we were in college, yeah. so what ended up happening was we pooled that money together and then we bought a duplex when we were. I was eighteen, my sister was nineteen or something, mm-hmm. and we were able to buy a duplex with like the you know twenty twenty five thousand dollars that we had saved up from the savings that we made from the time that we were four, saving twenty percent of everything that we ever made. So, and then you see how that affects you. You know what I mean? Like we were able to do things um, early on. Like I was able to do things early on in my career that some kids weren't able to do because like I had some, I had equity in a investment property. Like we had income come, you know what I mean? It was just like a, Oh, well that seemed to be a good idea. It worked out well for me. Then I should probably continue some of these habits into my adulthood. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, there were, there were things like that that they did that they did. Anytime we wanted extra money, we had to work for it. They wouldn't just hand it to us. Um, so we had, we had two acres and there's always yard work to be done. So, Every weekend, it seemed like I was out there doing yard work. When and then when I was, so I, I learned a lot about uh, how to do yard work, and I learned a lot about like fixing sprinklers and setting timers and doing all this landscaping work. So by the time I was sixteen, um, I started my first like landscaping business, and I a buddy of mine started. We started um, mowing lawns and doing um, uh, installing grass for like house flippers and stuff like that, and fixing sprinklers and getting everything working on the lawns, and then we would do that. Um, and so like, it was, I was entrepreneurial. It's just that the, the kind of the, the church side of it was like almost discouraging to making money. So it was almost like this, like yin and yang thing where I learned a lot directly from my dad, but then like the thing that was influencing the majority of my day was the school and the church and my youth pastors and youth leaders and principals mm-hmm. and all these people over here. Yeah. Um, and they were more like, Hey, go into ministry. It's not about the money, you know, the yeah. love of money is the root of evil and all that kind of stuff. And so it was like mm-hmm. this kind of yin and yang thing, but, uh, yeah. but my dad always had a value of like the Christian faith or whatever. So, uh, so, you know, I, I ended up going to the college on the church campus, which was the one, uh, that, uh, uh, it was purely ministerial. So I ended up getting a double major in Bible and church ministries. And, uh, by the time I was done, uh, done with college, I, I wasn't really doing much business anymore. I was focusing on, on, uh, what I thought I was going to be doing for the rest of my life. But then after I graduated, I figured I didn't want to do that either. So, <laughs> yeah. So you caught this entrepreneurial bug from your dad. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I, I think the entrepreneurial bug, bro, is like, I think it's, I think it's both caught and taught. Yeah. And I think it's also innate. Because my hmm. sister and I grew up where she's 18 months older than I am. And wow. she was she she wasn't really ever that way. You know, okay. like she she would work and she would do some things and she has a great work ethic, but she wasn't entrepreneurial in the same sense that I was. And she's she she uh she's very independent and and successful in her own right. She's a teacher in China. So she's been teaching in oh. China for the past like five years by herself. She's just a crazy, um, but she's just super <laughs> independent, super smart, a uh, bookworm, and she loves teaching. So she teaches in China, but that's my point is like, we grew up very similarly. It was just like, I, for whatever reason, had this thing inside of me that I, it was an itch I couldn't scratch other than doing entrepreneurial ventures and figuring out how to, how to, uh, make money easier and better. Yeah. Same roots, different path. Yeah. Yeah. Branching off the family tree a little bit different. I love it. Um, I want to dive into what you said about the church and money. Cause I, something I've experienced in my past, man, I, I, one of the reasons, Travis, I reached out to you is because I read your story and I hear your story about where you grew up and it rings home to me. So what did you experience from the church that you thought was in contradiction to maybe what you had like this calling inside of you that said, like, I'm really good at this and yeah, I want to do this, but I'm being held back. 
What did that look like for you as a young man? Because I want to get into when you got married and you got married quite young. So also, can you paint the picture? When was this? Like, how old were you when you started to realize that, ah, like, I'm not really, I'm not really in alignment with what, what you're, you're giving me right now. It was right before I graduated college. So I was getting my degree in, like I said, in Bible and church ministries. Yeah. And I uh, was dating my high school sweetheart, who's now my wife Amazing. and was basically, you know, about to ask her to marry me. But at that time I had, I had been doing door-to-door sales uh, in college uh, and I started doing door-to-door um, spring semester of my junior year, which was also the same year I was doing like fall and spring of my junior year. I was interning at a church um, in Newport beach on the weekends. Yeah. So we would, every weekend, my buddy and I, we would drive from Lancaster all the way down to Newport beach, about a two hour ish drive. And then you know, we'd get there late Friday night. We'd work all day Sunday. We'd work all day. Uh, we'd work all day Saturday and all day Sunday, cleaning the church, like, like doing janitorial services, cleaning the bathrooms, like setting up chairs, um, unsetting up chairs, mopping the, ch- uh, underneath the chairs that we just on dirty up. work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The whole weekend. And then Sunday night, we drive two hours all the way back down to Lancaster and be ready for school Monday morning, 7.30 a.m., first period, yeah. you know? And uh, I found myself during that time period doing the door-to-door sales thing, and I was, and I was pretty good at it. And I, I, I had a natural proclivity toward towards selling for whatever reason. And I don't know if it's because I grew up with my dad being in real estate, or I, I don't know exactly what, what it was, but I, I had some sort of a natural ability. And it could have honestly, bro, just been like my competitive nature. I hated to lose. And so sales was, a, it was an environment that fueled my desire to be competitive and beat other people. And so I was always, and, and the nice thing was like, in this sense, you know, I was always competitive, but it was always just like, ha ha, I beat you. And that's the, that's the W. But now it was like, not only did I beat you, but I also made more money on my paycheck this week. That's awesome. You know what I mean? So I, uh, quickly got promoted and got promoted again and got promoted a third time. And the time I got promoted the third time I got promoted to like, oh, I, they gave me a full-time job where I was getting paid 40 hours a week got PTO and benefits. And then I got promoted to being a team leader shortly after that. And then within a couple of months, I was running a team of 15 to 20 college uh, uh, kids that were my age, like people that I was hiring. So I would conduct interviews at my own school, hire all these kids, teach them how to do it. They'd go make money. They were happy. I was making money off of the deals I was making and the deals that they were doing. And I was just like, this is awesome. I was learning on my own, like going outside to seek management materials and different things like that. Um, to see uh, about how to make myself better, how to make my team better. And I enjoyed it thoroughly. And then on the weekends, I was doing this interning at the church thing. And I was like, this sucks. This is not fun at all. Right. And so I found myself being in this dichotomous situation where it was like the thing I'm supposed to be doing for the rest of my life, I don't want to do. And the thing that I'm supposed to be quitting in four months to go do the thing I don't want to do, I do want to do. Right. So what do I do about that? And uh, and at the time, it was like it was, it's just super taboo in that culture to go to that college and not go into ministry. It's very taboo. Like it's a pure, like I said, purely ministerial college. There's less than a thousand students. All of the degrees are like church ministries, pastoral theology, missions, music, secondary elementary education. It's like they're all for the purpose of going into 100% full time independent fundamental Baptist ministry. And if you don't do that, not only is it like frowned upon, but there's, it's almost, it's almost like a mini excommunication. It's Mm -hmm. like they, they just, don't care anymore about what you do or what you choose to do. 
And so I had these like meetings with the higher ups of the church. And because I was a lane, they, they call us Lancaster kids, meaning like I grew up at the church, but I also went to the college because the college with, you know, 900 something students, it was like 40 or 50 of us out of those 900 grew up at the church and okay. went to LBS, the school at the church, yeah, yeah. you know, but the rest of them were all people coming from all over the country where churches would send their kids out to our college, you know? So like we were the Lancaster kids that grew up there. And so I had a good relationship with the pastor of the church who was like a major individual in that entire movement. Cause our church was kind of a mega church. It was like the leading church of that entire IFB movement, independent fundamental Baptist movement. And so I had meetings with him and other people and, 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 and it was difficult to get meetings with him because he's running an 8,000 member church and a thousand student college and a K through 12 school and a publication ministry. And, you know, we got multi-million dollar building projects going on that he's raising money for Like he's writing four freaking books a year. He's just, he was a, okay, he was wow. a, a true, yeah. a, a true leader, regardless of how yeah. I disagree with a bunch of stuff that he did and what he believes and all these other things. And maybe his methods, like regardless of all that, he is a true leader and he built something amazing from scratch um, when he took over the church with 12 people in it and he turned it into that. So I had a lot of respect for him, especially at the time. And he was like the guy, you know, so mm -hmm. I had meetings with him and basically everybody in my life was just like, anytime I would hint at the fact that I was thinking about doing this other thing, it was just immediately shut down of like, that's the devil talking. Don't let, mm. you know, the devil pull you away from your potential for the Lord and, you know, all these other things. And so um, it was a really lonely time, bro. It was just very, very lonely. I didn't feel like I could share what I was feeling with anybody. Anytime I did, it was met with immediate resistance and immediate, just like, no, 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 don't do that. You know what I mean? Like, whoa, whoa, whoa you got to just go into ministry. Um, even friends of mine in college. And, and I said on a podcast one time and then one of my buddies from college, like reached out randomly. He was like, Hey man, I heard you on this podcast and I just want to say, I'm sorry for like not supporting you. And I was like, bro, don't even worry about it. We were, yeah. we were 20 year old kids. None of us knew what we were doing. Kids. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like we, 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 we didn't know you thought you were doing the best thing by like, you thought you were do, like being my best version of a friend by telling me what you told me. Don't feel bad about that. I'm not upset. at I'm not upset at you for it. It's just the way things were. And the way things were was a very lonely time period for me because I didn't feel like I wanted to do those things anymore. But I felt like if I didn't, not only was it not a, like meeting my true potential, but it was like I'm going against God's will for my life. Yeah, so not like, in alignment with who you are, like who yeah. you feel that you are. Right. Yeah. So yeah, super lonely time. Um, uh, I, I, even when I first brought it up to my, who my high school sweetheart, who was my girlfriend. And then, um, in between that time I'd asked her to marry me. So she was my fiance and I remember bringing it up to her at the time. And even she was like, Oh my gosh, how, what are we oh, going to no. do about that? You know, yeah, cause yeah. she was going to be a youth pastor's wife. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that was what she was going to school for. Like that, that's ma the majority of the women go to that school to find husbands. They don't go to work. They go to find a husband <laughs> to go into ministry with. That's like legitimately the yeah. reason they do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's very traditional old school style, um, Christianity. And so like, yeah. that was what her plan was to be, a to be my wife. That was her plan. You know, she got her degree in secondary education, which is useless because it was unaccredited. So uh -huh. she can't like teach anywhere except for Christian schools that don't require accreditation. So it was basically yeah. useless. So, and you know, she was just going to be my wife, but she was fully planning on being in full-time ministry. And she knew just as well as I did what it meant to not be in ministry. So she, even yeah. she was like, man, I don't know. I don't know what that means. Like what, what are you scary. talking about? Yeah. Right. Exactly. It's yeah, unknown. This is intimidating. We've never even thought about doing something other than this thing. Man, so when I left, it was like, uh, man, like you, you were immersed in this, like you've been immersed oh, yeah. in this since you were a baby. Yeah. And here you are 20, 21 years old being like, yeah, I'm, I'm not really wanting to do this. I'm going to step yep. out and do this other thing that I feel that I'm really good at. And I'm finding that I have skill in, 
And even though I, man, you painted this amazing picture. You have this figurehead, this guy who's the leader. And what you said, I think, is very powerful. I don't want to overlook it. You learned something from him. And there were things to aspire to that you saw in him, that caught not taught piece, even though you were in disagreement with the theology and the practice of it. But you pick, you were able to pick up on these skills and these attributes that you saw, which I think probably in some way you took some of those with, I, I'll do that. I won't do that. I like that approach with people. I don't like that approach. Absolutely, with dude. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. You couldn't help it, man. Like uh, it, I, it's, it's innate. It's in me. You know, yeah. like I was thinking about that the other day when we're, I was talking to somebody about, you know, things that you're uniquely qualified to do or be. Mm-hmm. And one of those things for me is, is communication just because like when I tell people I grew up in church, a lot of people are like, oh yeah, me too. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. You don't understand. Like I grew up in church, in like the actual church, physically there. That's <laughs> yeah. where I spent the majority of my waking hours of my day. Yeah. School, we had church three days, three times a week. So we had Sunday morning church, which would be Sunday school, which is all the kids in your class, right? Okay. Sunday school. And then you have Sunday morning, you know, we call it big church because it was where you go with all the with adults or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, we have Sunday school. Then we have Sunday morning church. And then we had Sunday night church at like yeah. five or five 30. And before Sunday night church, they had, they pulled some shenanigans, bro. They had what they called visit with the pastor. Yeah, yeah. Which was basically just yeah. the pastor's opportunity to preach a pre-sermon. So it was yeah. like a pre-sermon <laughs> and then we'd get up and sing and then he'd preach another sermon. So it was like four different preaching opportunities on Sunday. We had uh, we had chapel at school on Monday and Thursday and we had Bible yeah. class the days that we didn't have chapel. And then we had church on Wednesday night. And then we had soul winning on Saturday morning, which was just go out, knock doors, invite people to come to church on Sunday morning. And then guess what we did before we went soul winning? We had a soul winning rally, quote unquote, which is just another service opportunity. Oh to preach. So when I say like I grew up in church, like you I was listening to, to teaching and preaching and all sermons and communicators all the time, like thousands of times growing up. We had missions conference, which is when we'd have church Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night. We had yep. leadership conference, which would invite all the IFB pastors from the entire country. And we'd have church Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and sessions all day, Monday, Tuesday, mm-hmm. Wednesday. Like we had youth conference. We had winter retreat. We had like, there was always a reason to do more church, never a reason to do less church. And every time something was happening, we were there. And yep. so like when, and, and, and the, the fortunate thing that I will say was a positive for me in particular was that I, there's almost every other church in the IFB is horrible. Like I went on tour across the country, my junior, my my sophomore year of college uh, during the summer, I sang in a men's quartet and we traveled across the country and we recruited students to the college. And so I got to see firsthand, we sang in like 70 churches in 84 days. It was intense uh, singing schedule. And I got to see firsthand how many crappy dying IFB churches there are across this country. And the, the big, the big like thing that I'm grateful for is I didn't grow up at those places Mm because at least like I got to grow up at the world-class version of what existed. Like no matter how much of a cult it was or was not, it was like, at least it was like at the highest possible level. So all the evangelists that came in that were guest speakers, our pastor, you know, we had the best speakers in that game that would come preach our pulpit. Still to this day, some of the people that I watched growing up are still to this day, some of the best speakers I've ever seen. You know what I mean? Like some of the business speakers that I go watch is like, you guys need to go to church and watch those, those guys, because they crush compared to what, to what you're like, their ability to storytelling, persuasiveness. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's insane. So like that, I was in, in inundated, flooded with, you know, positive messages from, from world-class orators for 
hundreds and hundreds and wow. hundreds of times throughout my life. And then I was in preaching camp when I was 12, oh which is goodness. basically just, it's a week during the summer. It's yeah. a college level homiletics course, which is the study of preaching. Yep. And the guy who taught it was the executive vice president of the college, who's an evangelist for 30 years, who is to this day, one of the best speakers I've ever seen. Again, even though I disagree with basically everything he preaches at this point, like he's still one of the best speakers I've ever seen. And, 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 and he's one of my, one of my good friends, um, dads, and I have the utmost respect for the guy. Yeah. And he was teaching us how to communicate and, and quote unquote preach when I was 12, it was a introductory college preaching course that we're, that I was taking at 12. I I did that at the summer of my 12, when I was 12, when I was 13, when I was 14, we had preaching camps and we had preaching contests and we had oh teaching contests. And I was doing, oh, this. you know, it was just like, it was a part of who I was, you know what I mean? Yeah. It wasn't, there wasn't a way to extricate that version of myself from, from who I am now. Yeah. That's incredible. Wow. Hey guys, I wanted to take a moment and talk about our community of DMD brothers in the DMD mastermind. We are men who help each other to stay focused and intentional in our pursuits of personal, professional, physical, financial, emotional, and spiritual growth. We are a community of men who bring courage, wisdom, and transparency to unfiltered conversations that challenge us to be more impactful men, to be dads making a difference. We do this through our online and in-person events where men come together to speak into each other's lives and then turn around and do the deep work to create change in their families, in their businesses, and in the community around them. If you are wondering if this community might be right for you, you can find more information on the DMD Mastermind, and you can also book a call directly with me at dmdmastermind.com. Now, let's get back to our show. Man, I thought chapel monday to friday was bad monday night worship and twice on sunday was bad but that was nothing <laughs> compared to what you just shared hey what you just said is a lot more than what most people do though <laughs> um oh my goodness i'm I just want to reassure you that i'm not going to ask you to sing on this podcast although you did mention <laughs> that you traveled the country singing uh, i'm a little bit tempted is, right now to how get a is that what you think is yeah, that yeah. what you think yeah, yeah. man all these things are kind of piecing together and starting to make sense from what i've just seen in your story. So you have this entrepreneurial spirit, I'm going to call it, and it's pushing you. You're, you're going to decide to make this step away with your new fiance going to be your wife. I can imagine I just the weight of that on your shoulders. And yet there's this time in our lives where we discover this, this, this is me moment. And yeah. where you really find, like you mentioned, this, this, like I was good at this, but it wasn't me. I didn't feel it was my calling. And even though door-to-door -door sales, it gave you the skills, interacting with people. Sales and persuasiveness is huge if you want to be successful as an entrepreneur. You look at your dad and the leadership skills and resiliency he shared with you, even these speakers you learn from. And here you are. I would think one of your superpowers listening to your work is that you can build relationships with people in a very authentic way. When was the shift, because people right now heard your story, they think, okay, so he went door-to-door -door sales. He was super successful and that's it. But that's not it because that's not even the this is me moment. You made a huge shift, an entirely different direction. It's kind of led you to where you are now and has been, you've been very successful at it. So when was your this is me moment where you decided, wait a minute, I have a strength. I have a calling. I'm just going to jump in with both feet. And I'm going to follow this. Yeah, it was... Uh... 
it was actually counterintuitively after I had my first successful year in door to door. So after I decided I wasn't going to be in ministry, I was just like, I don't know really what I'm going to do, except for like, I'm pretty good at this door to door thing. May as well just try to continue doing that. The difference was I had moved from Lancaster to Fresno, which is central California. And uh, so it was the first time in my life that I'd been away from everything that I grew up in. Yeah. Um, and we had moved there for the sole purpose of the fact that the pastor of that church, who I'm still friends with now, had told me when he was recruiting me, he was like, we, we have a full-time position for you. If you want that, we have a part-time position for you. If you want that, if you want to just come up here and work and be a layman in the church, we welcome that too. Like we just want really good young people with a vision for Christ or whatever to come be a part of our church community. And it was the first person in my life ever that was in somewhat of an authority figure that, that had given me those options where it was like, wait, I don't have to do this a hundred percent full time with every second of my day. Like I can do something else and still be a contributor to the community like this. This is, this is interesting. So I went and visited the church and as far as like IFB churches go, it was one of the more quote unquote progressive ones of that time. Meaning like their Sunday night service was when they would go soul winning. So instead of like forcing you to come in on Saturday, it was like, well, Sunday night we'll have like a small service. And, or, or, or we meet at the church, we go out and we invite people to come to church and we come back and we do like more of a fellowship type service on Sunday night. And then our midweek service is not a, you have to come to church midweek service. We do what we call connection groups and you can go, pe- go to somebody's house and you study the Bible together, eat some food and have community instead of having to go sit in another service or whatever. And I was like, this rocks. <laughs> I was like, I don't have to go to church three times. Like I don't have to sit in these stupid services anymore. Like this is awesome. So, and the fact that you're going to let me do this part-time while I like keep doing what I really want to do full-time, that's great. So we moved out there and what ended up happening was I had to take an internal transfer in the company I was working for because I wanted to buy a house and I wasn't doing hundred percent commission long enough to buy a house. So they were like, you got to have a salary. So I did an internal transfer at the company I was working for, got a salary, but with that salary came a schedule, like a work schedule. And so for the next five weeks, for the only time ever in my entire life, I had a real work schedule um, that was like a nine to five work schedule. And they would not let me, um, since I was new to that division, they made me work Sundays. So I was not able to do the part-time work at the church like I thought I was going to when I first moved. And by the time we closed escrow on that house, two days after we closed escrow, I quit that job and went back to 100% commission. Um, And then then, uh, that was the only, that was all the time I needed, man, four weeks. Four weeks of being on my own, away from the culture I grew up in, in a house that I owned, that I bought with my new wife. All it took me was four weeks to be like, actually, I don't want to do, I don't want to do part-time at the church. I really don't. I'm, I'm good. The only yeah. reason I did it to begin with is because I knew everybody from the church was going or from the college was going to ask me where I was placed in ministry for after, the right. co- after, right. after school. So I was like, well, I'm going up there to work. I just didn't tell them it was part-time. Yeah. So within a few weeks, I was full-time door to door. And then within three months, I was recruited to another door to door company that gave me a big signing bonus and brought me on board. And, uh, that year I was like, first year I was doing it full-time first year where I was doing whatever I wanted to do, whenever I wanted to do it. And I, and then that, that was the first year I crossed six figures doing door to door sales, um, mm-hmm. selling alarms yeah. door to door. And I made six figures and that was the goal. I was like, I want to make six figures, six figures, six figures, six figures. And then I made six figures. And then at the end of six figures, I was like, is this all like, is this it? You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm kind of rumbling, I'm, I'm, I'm bumping up against the ceiling here already. And I'm 22 or 23. Like this isn't a good sign. And it was almost like a more of an identity crisis where it was like, is this like, I, I don't want to be capped. Yeah. You know, like even if I busted my tail 
and and got more established in the space and I worked more and whatever and put in more hours. It's like the most I could do is maybe 200 grand instead of a hundred grand, like the most. And like, that's not a bad living, but like in 10 years, I don't want that to be the limit on myself. And if I don't switch from from something right now, then that's where I'm going to end up. I don't want to be doing this when I'm 32 is basically it, you know? And so that was like another lonely period of life where it was like, I had, I had come to terms with the fact that I wasn't going to be in ministry. I had some money. I had some experience. I had some, uh, some, uh, some things under my belt at that point. But I also now knew I didn't want to do the thing I got my degree in and I didn't want to do the thing that I was good at. So yep. it was like, oh, what do I do? You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> at this point, bro, like I was like, I was looking at everything. I looked up FBI applications. I looked up the fire department. I looked up um, uh, real estate. I looked like I was, I was looking at every single option I possibly could. I was applying for a bunch of like regular sales jobs, like corporate sales jobs. Um, but I couldn't get a job. Nobody would hire me. And I, uh, and I, I, I didn't really know what I was doing. And so I dove headfirst into personal development for the first time ever. It was like the, the desire for self-education just, just came emanating through me and started watching some YouTube videos and started reading some books and started listening to some audio books. And then, and then really that's where I found podcasting. I, I started listening to some podcasts and after a while of listening to podcasts, I was like, I want to start one of these. I think that'd be cool. Yeah. And somehow these people are making money doing this. That would be a really great way to do it. You know, I was like, I, I, it, whatever I was doing next needed to check off all of my boxes and my boxes for me all came down to freedom. I want a time freedom where like I have control over my schedule, financial freedom, where I had like uncapped earning potential. And I wanted, um, location freedom where I can travel. Cause I really enjoy traveling. I can travel and make as much money when I'm gone as I, as I can while I'm here, which was impossible doing door to door, obviously, because you right. can't knock doors when you're gone. And so I, it was like, it has, has to check all three boxes. So at this point, like I'm looking at a job, uh, I'm looking at, I, I'm, I'm studying to get my mortgage license because that was something I was like, I'm good at sales. I'm good at numbers. You know, I could probably sell mortgages like pretty easily. So I'm studying to get my mortgage license. I'm taking a podcast course. Um, and then my buddy introduces me to door-to-door water purification systems, which ended up being fat commissions, like three or four times what I was making doing alarms um, and more than what I was going to be making doing mortgages. So at that point I was like, you know what, let me just start this podcast thing. And on the side, I'll do, I'll, I'll go door, I'll go back to doors, you know, go yeah. get back on doors and, and sell water purification. And so that's what I did until I was able to go full-time with the podcast. And here you are over a thousand episodes later. Yeah. Yeah. Almost. Various forums. Hey, <laughs> incredible. Um, I want to, we'll come back to the podcast closer to the end, but I want to talk about being a father because you, you mentioned this part of your story and I wonder you're a father of two. Two amazing little kids. And uh, how old is your son now? Uh, Cam, which great name, by the way. Cam is four and a half. Okay. So you have a four and a half year old and a one year old? My daughter, she's actually about to turn three. Okay, three. uh, In about, yeah, six, eight weeks. She'll be three. So you followed like you followed like the eighteen month thing that your parents did. Yeah, yeah, totally yeah. on purpose too. <laughs> yeah, it's planned <laughs> that way. Uh, so you got the you got these two little ones, and I think about the things that you've learned, you've shared, and I, I smile when you share your story at times because there's so many parallels. But the jars with the, have you implemented this with Cameron and with Cam and little things that even four and a half, like here's your little, your, I don't know if he's losing teeth yet, but you know, like, here's your money. Uh, no, not yet. Not yet. Yeah. But he did for the first time, uh, make some money in the last couple of months, picking up dog poop in the backyard. So we'll like, go help him and he'll, he'll pick up dog poop. And then Good for him, um, I took a picture with him cause it was like a really cool moment for me. 
to because he went we I brought him to the gas station and let him buy something like buy a snack with like the three dollars that he had made. And it was funny because I it was so I actually ended up being like four dollars. And I was like, man, inflation's killing all of us, even my son. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um so I had to I had to spot him a dollar or whatever to be able to get the snack that he wanted. But um, but yeah, it was a cool, it was a it was a cool uh, moment for me for sure. But um, yeah, once he starts making a little bit more money and, and really now he's at the age now where he's like really starting to understand and grasp things more. Yeah. Uh, so, so, you know, the, the goal is to be much more intentional, especially on the financial side for, yeah. for both of them. Yeah. I, I know you mentioned one of the things is you love to travel. Um, yeah. Do you still get to do that with the kids with Cameron and Cassidy and, you know, it's yeah. difficult, but we still do a good amount of it. Yeah. Um, I never had any intention of stopping the, mm-hmm. the one thing I'll say that we haven't done is we have not taken them international yet i mean like mexico but yeah. you know that to me it doesn't count it's, yeah. it's we haven't taken them you. we haven't taken them overseas you know what i mean like to yeah. to where these these types of like really extensive type trips um so that that's the that's the one thing we've kind of sacrificed but we travel a good amount still like across the states and travel for my for my work and everything and whatever we can um jackie and the kids will come with me so yeah. we they, they've now you know they've been on an airplane more than a lot of adults have <laughs> before they're you know, before they, they're even five. So the goal is to continue doing that, um, and kind of make that part of their education, you know, travel around with, with dad, when he goes to speak at this place or host this conference or whatever, like come out with me. And that's part of your learning, you know, it's a valuable experience, right. For them to see you in action, to see what dad does. Uh, especially I think of something that you've said in the past is that, you said when your son was younger that you would hope that Cameron could look at you and see that what you were doing would let him know that he could do anything he aspired to. Yes. Anything he aspired to, he could, because he could see that his dad was doing it. Yeah. That, that's, that's part. I mean, that's, that's the core really man of my why, like my why in life, why I, why I uh, continue to take big risks and do stupid things. Uh, that most people would label as like, that's too risky. That stupid crosses the line. Yeah. yeah that, that crosses the line from risky into stupidity. Yeah. Um, I, I continue to do those things, man, because like, to me, again, I think, I think the, one of the biggest problems for most parents, and I'm, and I'm sure I do this as well. We all have our blind spots to some extent, but, um, I think one of the biggest mistakes you can make as a parent is the do, as I say, not as I do parent who, and, and I think it's a lot of parents where they're just like, you can do anything that you put your mind to, you know, like you can accomplish your dreams, dream big and good after it and blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, but they sold out 10 years ago. Mm. And a lot of times they blame it on the kids. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, well, I could have, but you know, when I had you, I just wanted to stay home and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, so you gave up on your dream for me. That feels crappy as a kid. You know what I mean? Like you put, you put that responsibility on your kid that you gave up on your dreams for them. Like, no, they should see you in action, moving toward your dreams, accomplishing them. Even if you miss the mark, even if you fail a little bit, like, I, I just don't know how you can look your kid in the eye and be like, you can achieve anything and you can tackle and reach and achieve your dreams. And then, and then like, what are you going to say when they look back at you and go like, but why haven't you? Yeah. You know, right. like, what are you going to say? Like, oh, well, I got this thing. And that thing is like, well, so you're just going to start naming excuses. They're going to yeah. pick up on what you did. They're not going to pick up on what you told them to do because they don't even know that it's possible. Yeah. Why would they think that it's possible if, if like you didn't do it? It's like, okay, well, I also want to have kids. So does that mean that I can't achieve my dreams because I have kids? Because now I have kids and they're a barrier to me achieving my dreams. Right. Which doesn't make any sense because how many people have achieved their dreams with kids? 
a lot of people. Is it maybe a more difficult path? Sure. Are you going to be more tired than somebody without kids? Yeah. <laughs> Guaranteed. <laughs> yeah. But like, what's the other option? Right. Living life being average, being mediocre, and then blaming it on the people that you love the most in this world. Like, that's not a good option either. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like, I, I just feel like it's my responsibility to continue taking big risks. And ultimately at the end of the day, bro, like we're all going to die yeah. and nobody's going to remember us. You know what I mean? Except for the people that are closest to us, our kids, right. the people who we have right. an actual real impact on, you know, and, and, and obviously hopefully through some of the content that, you know, you and I put out or like writing a book or there's some ways to hopefully like carry that later. But yeah. um, Alex Ramosi had a great tweet the other day that was about the queen of England. And he was like, it was a whole point about bringing up death. Yep. You know, and, and, and pondering death was a huge tenet of stoic philosophy, which is something that I've, I've really held to as an adult now, kind of like forming my own values and, um, studying other ph philosophical, uh, value systems besides just the one that I was raised with in Christianity and fundamental Christianity. And that was one, that's one of the tenets of, of stoics is to, is to often consider your own death. And, uh, but the way that Hermosi said it was, was really brilliant, which I, which it was brought in a real life example. It was like, you know, the queen of England died six months ago. You haven't thought of it since you read it in the news. Yeah. And she's the queen of England. England. Yeah. You know, like she's a monarch, <laughs> one of the last yeah. living monarchs. You know what I mean? She was the queen for decades, you know, like she's part of this legacy, this lineage, and you haven't given her a second thought since you no. read the article that she passed. And that's the queen. Like what chances do you have? You know what I'm saying? Like, so why are you continuing to make decisions based on what all these other people think about you who won't be there on your deathbed? And if they are, won't think about you longer than three days after you die. Right. Death is coming for all of us, man. Like we, yeah. we all got to reconcile with that someday. So like, you know, when you think about the risks that you're looking at in the context of I'm going to die at some point and everything that I do is going to be nothing. Well, that kind of gives you a little bit, you know, it, it puts that risk into perspective. It's like, I'm afraid of risking 10 grand to take like, this risk to achieve yeah, when what I, I want when, to achieve. When that thing could let me live a life that's beyond the life that I ever thought possible for myself, yeah. I'm going to let that stop me. Yeah. And I'm going to tell my kid that it's because I can't work on it because I want to spend time with them. Yeah. I can't get up early to work on this. I can't. That's dangerous, man. You're, you're yeah. putting poisonous thoughts in your kids' heads from the very beginning if you're telling them that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and if you're showing them that kind of a thing, you know, and I never, ever wanted to be the dad that would look my kid in the eye, tell them they can do whatever they want and have them not ask me why I didn't do it. That's nice. uh, just, I, I, I don't know what I would I don't know what I would tell them. Man. And I don't yeah. and, and, and that wasn't something that would sit well with me. Well, well, good for you. Cause you're not going to have to ask them, right. You're not going to have to go through that. And I think that's, that's the thing. Like if I fit, like if I fail, that's one thing. Yeah. You know, that's it's just like, well, I, I was going after this and I was going after that and I was going after this and I did end up hitting that target, but I did do this thing over here and I would have never done that if I didn't do this. And so like, you're going to learn more and be more fulfilled and happy in the pursuit of your dreams than you are in the absence of the pursuit, even if you don't accomplish them. So why not pursue them to begin with? Yeah. You, you, I thought you said your sister was the teacher. <laughs> <laughs> she is. She's much better. She's much better yeah. than I am. I, so you've had an incredible journey and I just, you know, reflecting on your story that you shared, what have you learned about yourself during this experience? Because, and you're 31, right? So I, I look at you as young. I know you don't see it that way. To be fair, I still think I'm young. It's just like, it's a joke. I've 30, been there. 30 was a big age for me. Cause I was just like, I was always the young kid around, you 30? know, it's like when people heard I was 28 or 27 oh, or yeah. 29 or whatever, I was hanging so, out with 45, 45 year olds and 50 okay. year olds. And it was just like, you're 27. That's crazy. So yeah. Like when I hit 30, 
when I hit 30, it felt like, okay, you're a real adult now. It, it's no longer like you're like when you're in your twenties and you screw up, it's just like, he's a kid. You know what I mean? Yeah. When you hit 30, it's like, you got to start all of a sudden, like being an adult with, mature. with real adult responsibilities, even though I've had adult responsibilities since I was 21. Yeah. I just didn't really think of it like that at the time. I felt like I had yeah. time and like 30 was like, 30 was one of those ages. Cause like, you know, when you're a teenager, 30 feels like, you old. know, like old people, bro. Like that yeah. day's never coming. When you're 14, you're like 30. What? Yeah. It's like you're, you're like, you're basically retired. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like when you hit 30, for me, it was like a psychological thing that was like, oh, 30 came. Yeah. That means 40s coming. That means 50s coming. That means 60s coming. That means 70s coming. Like I got to get busy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so like that's all I mean by when I say like I feel older now because it, it genuinely like at this point it's like I'm I'm a real adult. Like I seasoned, adult. seasoned, mature. Yeah, yeah you I'm got a seasoned some... child. You know, is yeah. really what. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What did you learn about yourself over that journey that maybe has impacted the way that you approach parenting with Cameron and Cassidy? Uh, a specific journey in particular you're talking about? Sure. Let me make a parallel. You learned from your dad. You saw your dad go through these things and there's some things you took with him. In your journey from, you know, if cameras four and a half, you're looking at probably this time where you started your podcast, you started things going. Now you're balancing family life with building a business and a software company. You're doing these things. Uh, what have you learned about yourself through your experiences that you hope that you can share with your kids so they don't have to go through maybe a couple of the steps? Mm, that's a good question, man. I, I feel like the, the main thing is asking good questions and creating better values mm. because like, Love it. I, I'm not raising my kids in any, in any religion or in any certain belief system. And some people hear me talk about my childhood and, and I think that they get this, this, this understand, this idea that I'm like, I resent it or that I'm spiteful toward it. And that's not true. I, there's pros and cons to the way everybody was raised. And frankly, if I was going to be raised in an extreme one way or the other, I would right way rather be raised to the extreme that I was raised in because it taught me discipline and, and hard work and, it, and, and, you know, taught me to have a moral backbone and, and, and a lot of those things I, I value highly. And I think as kids, they have to be taught black and white. You can't give them a moral gray area because they're going to take it they're going to take the easy way out every time because they're kids. That's what they're supposed to do. Yeah. You know, so I think that you should have rigidity and there should be rules and there should be those things. And, and those things are all good, especially for, for kids growing up. Again, I think it was extreme the, the way that I, that I went through it, but again, I think that has a lot of positives um, and there's some negatives that come with it, but the positives outweigh them in my opinion. And so I don't really like resent those things it's just that I'm not going to raise my kids that way. Um, so for me, it's, it's been a rediscovery period of really trying to come up with my own values and the things that I think are positive ways to live life regardless, um, regardless of what belief system you end up having, regardless if you end up being religious or not being religious, regardless if uh, you end up with this career or that career, if you're an entrepreneur or if you go to college and become a surgeon, whatever you do, you will have a guiding set of principles that tell you what's right, what's wrong, how to live life, how to treat other people, um, and will ultimately lead to how fulfilled and happy you are in life. And I hope I hope that my kids get that that sense of um, independence where they feel like they can ask me questions that are difficult to ask that don't really have real answers. And I hope that I have the backbone to tell them the truth when those things happen. Um, and and I hope that they I hope that they learn the the value creation thing where where it's just like you don't have to have share everything the same with everybody else. And you don't have to share everything the same with me. Yeah. These are my values. And these are what the ones that I think have led me to operating at this type of a level in life. And I, and I, and I hope that they, 
are thinking about those things um, and and implementing um, those types of processes in their life by the time they become adults. You know, beautiful. It really is. You know, as as a dad of kids who are a little bit further along and they look back, I wish I was as mature of that at 31, but that was beautiful. But I'm going to challenge you with one more question. As a dad right now, through the lens of being a father, what is one area of growth that you are excited about or diving into right now? As a dad, uh, for me, it, it's about learning how to spend more time with my kids in a way that they enjoy versus a way that I enjoy. And it's really like just now getting to that point because, because my son's four, you know, four and a half. And so now it's like, he's having some agency and he's having some, some of his own thoughts and his own desires. And he wants to do this and he wants to do that. And, and, um, and, you know, I'm just constantly busy and in my head and I'm thinking about business. I'm thinking about this and thinking about that. And I'm, I'm, it's harder for me to be present. And so, um, when I spend time with my kids, it's like, I want to, it's usually in in a downtime for me, meaning that like, I just worked all day or I just got done with the gym or I'm, I'm, I'm tired. And so it's like my version of spending time with the kids is like, let's, let's watch a movie so we can sit down (laughs) on the couch and, you know, do nothing for a little bit. Whereas, you know, my son just wants to play and he wants to go do little kid things. And so, uh, you know, the thought of going to Disneyland is painful to me. <laughs> I don't, I, I hate, like, I hate Disneyland. <laughs> it's so annoying to me. Um, but I also know that they would love it and they would, they would, they would cherish those memories and things like that. And I know that I would enjoy it when I get there just by seeing the joy on their faces. Um, but, but like, yeah, the prospect of like standing in lines all day, paying a ton of money, you know, stand uh, when they get too. tired, you have to deal with them throwing a fit, even though you took all day to spend a bunch of money on them, they're still going to get tired and throw a fit at some point and you <laughs> got to deal with it. You know what I mean? So I, the, I think that this next stage for me is about, uh, spending more intentional time with my kids in ways that will mean something to them outside of meaning something to me based on the activity itself, if that makes sense. Thank you for sharing. I appreciate the vulnerability and answering that question. Sometimes it can be kind of put on the spot, but man, I think, I think you're on an amazing path and I thank you for sharing that. Uh, Travis, if if people want to learn more about you, what you do, listen to your podcast, where can they do that? Yeah. Travischapel.com is a good place. Um, We're kind of revamping that site right now. It should be live in the next couple of weeks, Uh, but yeah, it's C-H-A-P-P-E-L-L, Travischapel.com on Instagram. I'm at Travischapel. Um, and, uh, yeah, if you're a podcaster looking to get better guests for your show, you can go to guestio.com. And then my buddy, Chris and I just launched a creator mastermind community, 79 bucks a month, super cheap. Um, and it's at fulltimecreator.co. Amazing. Travis, thank you for taking time and taking time away from your family today. I appreciate you. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me, man. This is great. Thank you for joining me today on this episode of the Dad's Making a Difference podcast. I hope you found value in today's show. And if it made a positive impact on you, please share it with someone you know, leave a five-star review, and subscribe so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. And if you are a father listening to this right now who is driven to build a life of significance, to truly make a difference in the life of your family, in your business, and in the community around you, Go to dmdmastermind.com to learn more about the Dads Making a Difference Mastermind, a mastermind group for fathers that provides men with the skills, the connections, the accountability, the proven steps, and the brotherhood to truly become a dad making a difference. 
I'm Cam Hall. Thank you for spending time with me today, and I will see you on the next episode of the DMD Podcast.